This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. On September 9th, 2001, Ahmed Shah Massoud called one of the greatest guerrilla leaders in history alongside names like Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh was assassinated by two Al-Qaeda suicide bombers. Coming just two days before the terrorist attacks on September 11th, Massoud's assassination is one of those points in history that invites counterfactuals. Was it a warning of things to come? What might have happened in Afghanistan had the assassination failed? Afghan Napoleon, the life of Ahmed Shah Massoud, guides readers through the, the guerrilla's life, including his campaigns against the communists, the Soviets, and the Taliban, and how he later became a target for al-Qaeda. The book was written by legendary journalist Sandy Gall, who traveled to Afghanistan on many occasions, meeting with Massoud several times. Kalada Gall, who worked with her father Sandy to report and write Afghan Napoleon, joins us on the show today. She's the Istanbul bureau chief for the New York Times and a longtime reporter on Afghanistan and Pakistan. She's also the author of The Wrong Enemy, America in Afghanistan, 2001 to 2014. Today, Carlotta and I talk about Massoud, his life, his campaigns, and his work. We'll also talk about how Afghanistan's story over the last two decades, including the end of the U.S. occupation, changes how we understand Massoud's life. So, Carlotta, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I'd like to start with kind of the big picture, which is why is Ahmed Shah Massoud so important to understand when we talk about Afghanistan's history? Well, I think he was a remarkable figure because, uh, and this is really why my father first went out to Afghanistan in the 1980s to see him. Um, He was in a very poor country, one of the poorest countries in the world, Um, in a place that was mostly rural, no electricity, no running water. And these Afghans um, started to fight. When they were invaded by the Soviet army, they started to fight. And they took up a fight with just a few old rifles. Some of them, you know, were sharing shoes, sharing bread. Um, It was just a sort of remarkable story that they could think of resisting because this was still the Cold War, it was Soviet times, the... The, the Soviet, you know, superpower was one of only two superpowers in the world, and it was formidable. Um, and these Afghans took them on. And then, so then, you know, my father traveled in and met met Masoud and was just incredibly impressed that, uh, that he had the guts, but also the intelligence to take on the Russians. Um, it's mostly Russian army, although it was Soviet. Um, and, and then actually gave them quite a hiding to to the point that, you know, nine years later, the the Soviets left and, you know, uh, Gorbachev, the the president then, uh, at the time called it, you know, Afghanistan a bleeding wound. Of course, we in the West have learned that since, but for for the Soviet Union, it was a very debilitating 
it was their Vietnam, it was a very debilitating defeat, and it actually had social effects back home, which helped bring down communism. I mean, it was a phenomenal feat that these Afghans did, and Masood was really in the forefront of that. So what's Masood's life like before he becomes this major guerrilla leader? You know, one thing I noticed is that he spends time studying in French. He always seems more comfortable in French when he talks to foreign reporters, foreign leaders than speaking in English. Um, what's his life like before he becomes this kind of major, major figure? Well, that that's also interesting because the Afghans are often, especially the Afghan Mujahideen, often seen or thought of as, you know, woolly bearded men from the mountains and, you know, uneducated. But actually, he came from quite an educated family. His father was a colonel in the army, the Afghan army. They moved around. He was posted to various places in the countries. So Masood grew up, his early schooling was in Herat, a very sophisticated city in the West. And then he moved, they, they moved to Kabul and he went to the French Lycée, which was one of these, you know, foreign run, uh, very good high schools in the capital. Um, and so half of his lessons were in Persian, Farsi, and half of them in French. And so he, he had he had speakable French, you know, I heard him, I, I met him sometimes with my father and, and he he spoke passable French um, right to the end of his life. And But I think what also the French Lycée teaching gave him was, you know, a much wider view than, say, the Taliban had in their madrasas. Um, he, you know, he learned about Charles de Gaulle and the French Republic and, and, and so much that I think gave him a very, very um, important education early on in his life that, um, that influenced his later view because he didn't become the extremist that a lot of the Mujahideen did. He was, um, he was moderate, he was tolerant, he believed in um, an inclusive um, society and um, a demo- democratic way of of administering to his people, and so that that's very interesting. I think the French education perhaps was very very um, formative. Um, and then he after that he gra- he finished high school. He went briefly to the polytechnic to study architecture, and then that's when politics got in the way and he actually, you know, he got involved in politics and then had to flee the secret police. And so he never finished his degree, but he also, that was also formative because the polytechnic was very Russian influenced and they had Russian um, engineers and, and professors. And uh, that, that was where this Russian influence in Afghanistan started becoming a hugely political divisive issue. And so he saw both sides and he didn't like what he saw of the Russian influence and he became you know he became vehemently opposed to the Russian um, influence over Afghanistan and then eventually obviously an invasion uh, which he then took up arms against and of course he he starts fighting this kind of very long guerrilla campaign insurgent campaign you know first against the communist government of Afghanistan then against the Soviets um, kind of how did that how did that guerrilla campaign start and then build over time? Yeah, so that's what's so interesting because I think in the West we we just sort of saw the Russian invasion, which happened in uh, you know Christmas in nineteen seventy nine, um, but actually it was it all started much earlier than that. So Masood first 
He was born in 53. He was 20 in 1973 when he first had to flee his own government. So he was active in the Muslim youth, which, as I mentioned, was, was opposed to the sort of growing Russian influence in Afghanistan. And um, he fell foul or he got hunted down by the secret police of the then President Daoud. And he and some of his friends fled and they fled to the neighboring country, Pakistan. And then he came back in two years later. So I think he got some training there. It's all a bit murky, but I think the Pakistanis took some of these young people and some of their professors under their wing. They they nurtured them a bit. They gave them some brief training and some sort of education. And then he came back in 75 to do a very ill-thought-out abortive coup. It wasn't his idea, but he was sort of goaded into helping. And he did his bit in his home valley of Panjshir. They actually did seize the government building. Um, He was successful, but the others never did anything. They were supposed to be doing other things in other parts of the country, including the capital, Kabul, and it, it all collapsed. And he fled again back to Pakistan. And that's where he then really went into... It's an interesting introspective moment. He he read voraciously. He did do some training again. The, the Pakistanis did give them all these Afghans some, you know, counterinsurgency training or no, not counterinsurgency. I suppose insurgency training, um, and you know, bomb making and sabotage and shooting. I mean, that's about as much as they got. Um, but they started this sort of little exile community to try and and. Um, oppose what was then what they thought was a dictatorship who was too close to the Russians, which was the Prince Daoud. Um, And then, of course, he was overthrown anyway in 78, and the communists took over. And so then these these young people were really against, you know, because they'd always been against the Russian influence, and now there was a communist government in power. And then um, when that communist government got into trouble and became more and more draconian, the Soviets invaded, you know, with Russian tanks right up to the capital and to the presidential palace. They overthrew, in fact, the and, and assassinated the the then president and installed their own, their new, more sort of controllable proxy, you know, protege. Um, and then started the ten, nearly ten year. Russian occupation or Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And that's, that became the main thing that Masoud was fighting. But when you look at it, he actually started as a 20-year-old um, being active. Um, and then, of course, when the Russians did invade, he was up up in his own, in the hills of his own Panjshir Valley, which is northeast of Kabul. And uh, he was gathering and training some young men and so on. But he suddenly found people flocking to his banner, as it were. And um, his, his, if you talk to the people who were starting at that time, he's, they said the Russian invasion just made it explode because the, so many people came to support, um, to join up. He was training and he quickly expanded and he started taking, taking the territory and, and gradually, well, quite quickly, he took control of much of the valley. Um, so that's how it all began. Um, um, but the, but he was obviously, um, uh, he was opposed to, and it's not just that he, it was not really that he was an Islamist, um, although he joined the Muslim youth, which was obviously in those days, you know, it was the Muslim Brotherhood starting up and everything. But his real thing was he was against dictatorship. And I think that's the way to look at Masood. He was against this oppressive secret police. He was against the totalitarian 
you know, dictatorship um, that was going on. And he was against, you know, the the influence of the Russians, which he felt was atheist, was alien, uh, was, um, you know, very oppressive. And they didn't want that. And, you know, they, this this was also a young man who who watched, you know, what was going on in the rest of the world. He he was, you know, this is there's a good story in the book or my father's book of of him as a young man listening with his father to the radio during the the six day war of the Israelis, you know, and um, as a young Muslim, you can imagine uh, all those emotions that were flying around in those days in the seventies. So that's his background, um, and then you know, of course. The most famous and most important moment of his life, I think, was the confrontation against the Soviet army because it was just a, such a David Goliath, you know, feat. And maybe let's get into that a little bit about about um, Masood's skills as a as a guerrilla commander, as a military commander. What I guess what made his campaign so successful? What made him such a successful guerrilla commander? Yeah, well, that that was that's that's what it, I think made him often so popular and interesting for journalists because my father writes early on in the book how he actually trekked in in nineteen eighty two, not really knowing much about the Mujahideen or who was there. He'd heard about Masood, so he decided to try and go and see him, and he went in to do a, a documentary, and it took three months. They had to hike in through the mountains, took a 12 days of walking and riding. Um, and then they found him, um, and he, he, he's he got a, a wonderful passage of where he just first met him and, and observed him and saw him among his men. And he's this young 28-year-old, quite sort of slight man, but he describes him as with very intelligent eyes um, and a sort of a magnetic personality, which you could call it, Charisma. I mean, he definitely had a natural leadership or people listened to him, people were following, people were joining up. Um, but he was also obviously a thinking man because he described, my father describes, so they, they, they all go into a house because there's Russian planes overhead. And then he sees they're all having tea and there's about 100 people in the room and they're all, you know, and Masood sits quietly in a corner and he's going through a sheaf of letters and writing replies uh, which was obviously his already his information network or his orders. Um, he describes him as you know um, quiet and confident, um, uh, very very intelligent, but also then in the the days after that he saw what how brave he was and a man of action because he knew knew how to fight, he knew how to muster his men. Um, there was a huge offensive that occurred just as my father got there, so he he saw him. He spent, you know, more than a month with him uh, under a full Russian offensive up the valley, and um, and he saw him in in quite a few operations like that, um, and I think uh, was just, you know, found him incredibly impressive for a young man of twenty eight, you know. So I'd like to shift the story a little bit later, which is after, you know, after the Soviets leave the. Afghan government falls. They try to create a new government, um, but then the Taliban emerge, and and Masood he seems to dislike the Taliban, never like the Taliban. What? Why did he refuse to to work with 
to work with the Taliban and then fight back against the Taliban government. Well, that's what's so interesting, because actually what is perhaps not very well known is when the Taliban rose up in 1994, um, Masood's party, which was led by Professor Rabani, Jamiat Islami, they were actually favorable to the, to the Taliban and encouraged them, in fact, even gave them money at the beginning. Because they were seen, and I think a lot of people thought this, they were seen as, you know, the religious, moral, Mujahideen fighters who were very honest and were not, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff going on at that time. There was a civil war, a lot of lot of checkpoints, a lot of people extorting money and so on. And the Taliban was seen as good. But um, Masood then, as they approached, so they took the south of the country and they approached to Kabul. And Masood... Um, decided to go out and meet them and say, you know, let's talk, let's negotiate, let's work together. And uh, um, there's, it's an amazing passage in the book. Um, he he drives out the South. Um, he says, I'm going to meet them. He has a couple of mediators who, who are sort of um, religious clerics who will take him. Um, but all his followers say, don't go, and including his own personal bodyguards. And they, they said, don't go, it's, it's a trap. And Masood said, no, I'll go, you know, and he went, um, I think he borrowed a friend's pistol and then he and he went and sat with them alone. But what's fascinating is he came back alive, um, but he came back saying they're not of their own mind. Um, they are being run by someone else. And so I think he found that they weren't really in charge of things um, and they weren't totally honest with him. Um uh, it, fascinatingly, the, the the man who did meet him had had orders to detain him or even kill him, and and was punished for not doing that on the Taliban side. But Masood, I think, never um, really trusted them after that. I think he saw he saw through them. He he basically told his followers that he thought Pakistan was calling the shots and ordering them. And that he could see they weren't all going to work with him. They didn't just want a so-called Islamic government. They wanted total power, and they were against him. So, so he, I, I think he, from that time, he never really trusted their motives. And then, so then, what happened was, you know, he he pulled out of Kabul rather than actually have it completely destroyed again. Um, and so the Taliban, when they really circled closely, he pulled back. He did a very, very impressive strategic retreat. He took all his weapons and all his people and hundreds of thousands of followers and, and his own library of 2,000 books. And he pulled back to his home valley of, of Panjshir and left the capital for the Taliban. Um, so so after that, he then was in the resistance. And, and you know, he decided to fight because he didn't, didn't feel that the Taliban... And this is where it was, it's very interesting. He talked in the years after this. So for sort of the next six years, I suppose it was, he fought the Taliban from his base, and which got smaller and smaller in the northeast of the country. Um, and he his point was they are not, they don't represent true Islam. They are totalitarian. They are extremist. You know, Islam is actually a religion of tolerance and peace and he felt they were misrepresenting Islam. And he actually was very religious himself and very knowledgeable. He'd, you know, he'd studied the Quran, he'd, he'd studied his books all, he sat with a, um, uh, a professor, a cleric every day practically to, to 
go over the Quran and and uh, you know all the uh, Islamic um, uh, hadith and so on. And so he he knew what he was talking about, and he really didn't trust the Taliban from an ideological stance as well as from a you know just a, a purely militaristic point of view. Um, he found them too strident, too harsh, and too dictatorial against their own people as well. And he he talked about that in many interviews in in towards the end of his life. And then of course. Famously, we'll probably get onto this, but he, in the last months of his life, he went to Europe to try and warn the West not only about the Taliban, but with but the the Al Qaeda people who were who, who they were harboring, who were in Afghanistan, and he was trying to warn that this, you know, it's not just us who are suffering from these people; you will suffer, and they're going to do something. You know, he he had a he had information that that something big was coming. And he tried to warn the West. Um, fascinatingly, that was in I think April two thousand one. So just you know, six months before, five months before what what we know has happened in on nine eleven. So one thing that kind of struck me in kind of reading um, reading the book was uh, that the Americans never seemed to like. Masu never seemed to like working with them, you know, compared to, you know, the British and others, you know, what made the Americans kind of preferred their own people? I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his name. Um, they, they, they prefer working people like, um, Heck Matiar. Uh, and I guess kind of what, what made the Americans so hesitant to work with Masood? Yeah, this is fascinating because my father uncovered it quite early on that one of the reasons was that it, it was a post Vietnam consideration but it was also it was to what they call deconflict between the two superpowers so the cia which was as we all know supporting the mujahideen they wanted to help a resistance against the soviets but they wouldn't send their own people in they had a rule that no american cia or or american government people could go into afghanistan in case they got caught by the Russians, or in case it got escalated to be a sort of superpower confrontation. And so, but the effect of that, which seemed to be sensible, and in fact, you know, he, my father has a, an MI6 um, man describing that as sensible, but what it, the result was they were ill-informed. They didn't go in on the ground to see things for themselves. And they relied on, they worked entirely through the Pakistani Secret Service, which is called the ISI, who then ran the, the, the whole Mujahideen operation from Pakistan, which made sense, next door country, but it meant that the Pakistanis pushed their own people they wanted, and they very much supported the Pashtuns, who were the, the majority in the south of the country, um, and have a big minority in Pakistan. So, so that was, the, the CIA basically was led by Pakistan. And, um, that was that in the long run, and and more people have written about this. Steve Cole has written a lot about this. Um, the it, it warped the the view, the American view. They just trusted and went saw everything through Pakistani eyes, and of course, Pakistan was serving its own interests and supporting its own people for its own reasons, and and they were they did support very extremist religious sort of cult figures who actually were not so accomplished on the battlefield and were much more political and ended up being much more dangerous, you know, which was Hikmatyar, who's a notorious war, war criminal, 
who, who, who was responsible for, for shelling and destroying much of Kabul city in the 90s, and then the Taliban. They're also Pakistani proxies. So, so it was just, that was one of the main reasons. Um, and I think they, dis, they didn't like Masood. I think they wrote him off early on as small, not important. And then they were annoyed when I think a lot of journalists uh, you know, wrote that he's, he was doing impressive things. And I think most of all, the Pakistanis didn't like Masood because they couldn't control him. He never went out to Pakistan. He didn't like their efforts to direct and control him. He wanted to make his own decisions on the battlefield. Um, and he resisted their efforts to control him. And that they, they really didn't like that. And so uh, we saw when he did take control of Kabul in 1992, Pakistanis, among others, were furious because he was not their man. And they wanted their man, their, you know, a client in Kabul, who would help, uh, you know, who would uh, suit their interests. And that was one of the disastrous things for the for Afghanistan, was that he he was the most able and he took control of Kabul in the 90s, but uh, his the neighbouring countries especially didn't like or trust him. I don't know if I answered enough on the American... Um, I mean, I think the, 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 perhaps just to finish on that, your you know the question on on why the Americans didn't trust it. I think they were very led by Pakistan, um, but they also uh, and there's a very telling passages in the book as well, because I think this reflects on how America managed the aftermath as well. The last twenty years in Afghanistan, they they became lazy about the Afghans. They they didn't. Um, they didn't really go and and study and get to know some of these people, um, like Masood. They just, in the end, um, you know, described them all as, oh, they're all bad warlords, they're all corrupt, they're all, you know, just as bad as each other. Um, and you hear this, you know, a, a, a lot in, in gov- governments and among politicians, not just about Afghans, but you, I've spotted it as a journalist, you can see it's it's the way of trying to avoid, you know, writing them all off. We don't we don't need to bother them. And in fact, you know, uh, internationally, the, the job of governments is actually to find the right people and then support them and and make, you know, help the country work through its difficulties like an invasion of a superpower um, so that they can come out afterwards uh, and 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 survive as a as a country and as a civilization. And um, I think the American comments about Masood were just lazy. You know, just they wrote him off as just another, you know, commander looking out for himself. They they branded him with corruption, which was totally unfounded in my view. So um, it, it, you know, there, there was there was some reasons for their ignorance, but there was also, I think, uh, a failure of of doing their, their job. So I'd like to pivot now to talking about, um, well, talking about your father and, and also your work in, in, in reporting out the, the story of Masood um, and kind of like, what were, what were your father's kind of mm. hopes and goals and kind of in meeting with Masood and kind of telling that story. And then as this gets turned into a book, kind of what, what was that process like? Did you have to go back to, 
to to sources to kind of report out the story a bit more kind of kind of what was the what is the kind of the long relationship i guess between um your father and you uh, with Afghanistan and with and with Masood. Yeah, well, so it, it was pretty fascinating because this is a this was a ten year labor of love of my father. He he wrote a book on. He kept going to Afghanistan even after he retired from being a television presenter. He he wrote books and he he wrote a very good book, The War Against the Taliban, to explain why why um, you know it was all going wrong in the early years after 9/11 why the taliban was resurging and the british had a terribly hard time there and so on and then then of course i think he felt he he had known masood personally he spent many um many interviews with him but many you know weeks on end during the operations um with him and and so i think after after he'd done that book in 2003 he felt he should do a biography of Masood, and I think it was because he, you know, he was one of the people who'd spent a lot of time with him, and 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 could and knew his family, could piece together. And then he then he discovered through interviewing um, Masood's son Ahmad Masood, um, who who was studying in England, he discovered that Masood had kept a diary all his life, um, written in handwritten in notebooks during the fighting, you know, often late at night, like, you know, lamp, oil lamp. And um, Ahmad, well, and, and uh, Masood's brother, Walib Masood, um, helped get some of, some of the, the ex, some extracts from some of the volumes to my father. He had them translated. And so they are reproduced in, in the book. Um, first, they are the first sight of his personal diaries, and they are a remarkable record. And a very, um, very moving, I found, um, part of, of, of the book, just to show what he, what he was going through, what he was thinking, how he, how he planned, how he saw things. He, he was very self-critical, very um, uh, methodical in examining his problems and his, his um, uh, what was going on. He records, you know, the difficulties he has with the Mujahideen and with, you know, some of the ones who are treacherous against him and so on. So there's some fascinating detail in that. And so uh, really, my father had collected all this. He'd written whole sections of the book. And then I could just tell, and I, uh, he, I, we were thinking, we must get this published, you know. And so then I started to, to help pull it all together, see what where the gaps were and help fill the gaps. And he, my father had done masses of interviews but not always transcribed everything, so we I helped go through a lot of that. And then I read the diaries, and I was so moved by them. So we, together, we you know put in the best extracts. Um, so it was more a compilation that work I was doing because he'd done so much of the interviews. I mean, and he he'd interviewed people who are, for example, the famous. There's a famous guy who who was a liaison between Masoud and who. who because Masoud went into negotiations with the Russians at one point, and uh, the the main Afghan who helped those and was present in some of those conversations, uh, my father interviewed him. He's since died, so it's an extraordinary record that we've got, you know. So, so anyway, um, that's how it happened. And I was working by then in for the New York Times in Kabul, so I was steeped in Afghan stuff, and uh, and so this this. When I moved on, I left and did my own book. But then I, I thought we must pull all this together because it shouldn't, 
just sit there and not get published. And and so um, luckily we found this great publisher house in, in London and they took it on. And it's actually, um, yeah, it, it, it's worked out well. Uh, it came out for the 20th anniversary of his death. So... You know, speaking speaking of of how Masood dies, you know it is it is one of these. Um, I note in the introduction, kind of, he's assassinated by Al Qaeda. I think two days before before nine eleven, and it's the kind of the kind of given Masood's centrality to the story of um, Afghanistan. It's the kind of event that that invites counterfactuals. You know, what might have happened had he survived? What might have happened if the assassination never happened? I wonder if you might talk a little bit about about how Masood dies and the immediate aftermath of that, um, what did the Afghanistan resistance kind of lose after after Masood is assassinated? Yeah, so it was, it was a very shocking, um, and I think for the Afghans, a very frightening moment when Masood was killed because he was the last obstacle between the Taliban taking over complete domination of, of Afghanistan at that time. And it was... Um, it was, you know, they were so clever. There were two Arabs posing as reporters. Everyone knew that Masood believed in talking to the press, believed in getting the message out. And there was a feeling also that they needed to reach out to the Arab world and open their eyes to what the Taliban was. You know, they they couldn't believe that, people, you know, that all the Arab world thought the Taliban were a good thing and they needed to get it out. So anyway, these two Arabs came with some introduction and then he agreed to see them and uh, they'd been checked, they'd been searched, but uh, they'd had the, the they had uh, in, a, in a battery pack around the waist of one of them, they had the bomb. And uh, anyway, he sat down to the interview and the explosion happened and he was, he's not killed immediately. The, the guards rushed in and, uh, he he asked to, them to look at his companion first, who was his great friend, um, who did survive, um, Masood Halili, um, who was also very badly injured, though. Um, and then they took them to a helicopter, and he we think he died in the helicopter. Um, he was declared dead when he got to a, a clinic on in Tajikistan. Um, so, so for the, fir- the 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 panic at the time, they didn't actually announce his death immediately because was was there going to be a big Taliban onslaught and the the re- the resistance would would collapse? But in fact, they were they were good enough to hold it, and they immediately appointed a successor, and he held the line. And then, of course, two days later, the whole world changed because nine eleven happened, and uh, very quickly the Americans knew and realized it was al-Qaeda and they were in Afghanistan and, and so they declared war against the Taliban. And uh, and then his, Masood's forces were basically, and his united front, because he'd been building a united front with other groups in the north, that proved the, the base of the American um, intervention against the Taliban because the Americans did the bombing, aerial bombing, which of course swung things, but the men on the ground were the Afghans and they were Masood's forces. So, you know, there's a huge success in quickly sweeping away the Taliban was all Masood's men um, and his training and his his commanders, um, you know, which was often overlooked, I think, by um, by people because they were then, you know, disarmed and 
um, much criticized for, but in fact they you know they couldn't have been done without them. Looking looking onward, I, my father's often asked this question: What would have happened if Masoud had not been killed then? And he he often demurs. He, you know, who knows how? And I think most journalists veer away from hypotheticals. But um, but he did ask the question of Jerry Warner, who was the um, MI six controller, um, who first sort of supported Masoud back in the eighties. And he said, I think he would have been a great ally uh, with the West. He was pro-West. You know, he he was a moderate, but he was also incorruptible. Um, and what we saw, of course, um, under the leadership first of Karzai was some quite messy, as you know, um, incompetent administration. Um, I also think personally they made some mistakes. They decided not to do a conscript army. They decided to do a professional army. And I think Masoud probably would have said, no, we need a, a national army from every family should give their son for some training and some uni unifying, you know. Um, I think he would have been a fantastic builder of a national army. I think he was a super good organizer and he uh, he was obviously a very inspirational man. And so I think that was, you know, as we've seen now with the takeover again of the Taliban, um, the National Army trained by the Americans collapsed very quickly. Um, but uh, I think when you look at it, one, the Americans built a kind of unsustainable army which relied on American foreign contractors to do a lot of the heavy lifting. But secondly, they um, they lacked uh, uh, the sort of moral leadership in the center that um, made them want to fight for their country. And um, and I think Masoud, he knew how to build that. We saw how he did it with his own forces against the Russians. So I think that was a huge loss to the country. And I think that, the, you know, Pakistan and Al-Qaeda and Taliban knew exactly what they were doing in trying to assassinate him because he was a formidable um, opponent and they, they needed to remove him if they were going to control the whole country. And... Uh, so Al Qaeda basically has, you know, we we've learned since um, Bin Laden offered this as a gift to the Taliban. I'll I'll do this for you. I'll remove him, you know, and then you will be able to control the whole country. So that's in the book too. This you know, famous conversation that went on uh, between the Al Qaeda leader and the Taliban leader. So um, so I think that that's that's how I. Um, see it that he was a huge loss um um you know i mean you could say though that he he he'd achieved his great accomplishments which were to to fight off the russians and then to to build a, you know uh um a core of of followers who then could take it on and so now we will see will his son ahmad masood pick up the, the mantle um, will some of his commanders fight a resistance against the Taliban or try and, or if, if not do a fighting war? I think they are, they are doing some fighting and we might see them picking up now in the spring. Or will, they, will his son try and do a political war against the Taliban? But I think he has definitely shown that you don't let people walk all over your country. You do resist and... And you do stand up for what you think is is right, and um, I think that legacy will remain. I'm sure. So I have one 
final question, which is, you know, the U.S. presence in Afghanistan came to an end last year. Um, Also, that was when um, the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan, the fall of Kabul. You know, with with what's happened in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, how does that lead one to kind of examine or or re-examine the role that Masood played? Yes, and that I think that's why the book is so timely, actually, because it's so thought provoking on you know all of these questions of what what went wrong, what could have been done better. Um, but I, I mean, I think the lessons that my father always took was, um, you know, the Afghans were fighting the Russians um, before the West came in and tried to help them or or nurture them or or push them in one way. They were already fighting. They were resisting. They did not want a foreign country coming in with its atheist ideals and its tanks to tell them what to do. Um, And and I think um, that's what Masood was all about. There are some people who look at his flaws and say, oh, he's just another man who could never put down his gun, who, you know, who was always seeing uh, fighting as the way, you know, out war, you know, a warmonger, some people would say, or or whatever. And I, I think my father and I would disagree with that because, um, you know, when you are invaded and, and by a, a superpower, I mean, this is the level of, you know, uh, a Second World War event or, a, or what we're seeing today and, you know, Russia going into Ukraine. Um, it's really, um, it, it's, do you fight or do you let them walk all over and take over your country? And so, um, and and do you stand up to fascism or to, to, to totalitarianism? And I think, um, I think the West, you know, obviously did a very messy exit just now uh, with the Taliban takeover and a complete sort of failure in there trying to build a, a, an Afghan national army. But, you know, I I went I've been in going to Afghanistan for the last twenty years, and there were some great things they did too. I mean, there's a whole generation of now very educated, very able Afghans. That's all the Western involvement. They know how to run their banks. They know how to run their country. How to fix the environment. You know, um, and and they were just doing it. And of course, now the Taliban has ripped all that up. And so I think it really teaches you. That the the West should support these countries and these these people who want better things for their uh, for their own country and 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 you have to stand up to to unjust aggression. Um, I think that's the lesson I take. And I think Masood always said that he said as long as um, you know, I'm there's a patch the size of my hat. He had this famous r- woolen roll brimmed cap called a puckle, and he always said, as long as I control, you know, an area the size of my puckle, I will resist, because I think he believed in in resisting uh, injustice and and aggression and totalitarianism. So, and I I think um, we have to in this world. I think we can't let Russia just you know, decide to have another war. You could say the same with America. Um, and I think he would have been very tough on not having American troops, actually, in Afghanistan. If he'd been alive, he would have said, we don't need your troops. We bring your aid, bring our experts, but we can do the, we can do the, the 
um, the security on the ground. And I think I think he would have been very tough on that um, with the Americans. And of course, it would have saved a lot of American lives, and it probably would have saved a, a resurgence of the Taliban. So, um, so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and I think I'm hoping that his family will release the rest of the diaries because my father only saw a few volumes, and there's, we think, 40 volumes. So those need to put out there. I think there's a lot still to learn and to understand. Um, and I think also to show respect for for the indigenous people. You know, it's so easy to... And we saw President Biden do this, right off uh, the Afghan army is not even fighting. And you know, Karzai and, and Ghani governments being corrupt and feckless. I mean, that's all just, you know, Western uh, dump, you know, scapegoating uh, in my book, because there's a lot we could have learned of how the Afghans see, uh, you know, how to run their lives. And, and um, I think that's why so many journalists are so find Afghanistan so fascinating and a place we return to many times because there's so many personal and social and cultural lessons to be learned from a country like that. Um, they, they often understand things much better than we do. They understand what's important in life and how to run your life correctly. Um, and so I think a lot of the political scapegoating has been absolutely appalling. Um, and so I think I hope a lot of people will, will turn to a book like Afghan Napoleon and, and understand how how these men uh, were really true, you know, true patriots, but true to their people. They were, you know, born and bred to it and they were doing what they thought right. And I think well, we can learn and, and look look at all the faults. Sure. I mean, you know, people who fight, get people get killed and he, he had his his own, you know, their own critic, there are critics for for his his campaigns, especially in Kabul. Um, some of the men uh, of, of not his own, his own were more disciplined, but there were some atrocities done by commanders under his under his uh, when he was defense minister. So he should he's responsible certainly by under the law for that. Um, but we should still study him and and to see his diaries by his own his own mind. I mean that's I think uh, definitely something that that we should we should look at and learn from. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Carlotta Gall on Afghan Napoleon: The Life of Ahmad Shah Massoud. Carlotta, I actually have a couple final questions for you, which is. Um, where can people find the rest of your work, and uh, what's next for you? Okay, so I um I'm still with the New York Times, and I, right now I'm speaking to you from the border with Ukraine because I'm about to go into Ukraine, where, as we were mentioning, the uh, the Russians have started a new war, and I think this one is going to be the mother of all um, horrendous campaigns. I mean, I followed the war in Chechnya back in the nineties. Um, I've been looking at the aftermath of Syria, uh, where they're still waging war, you know, um, and and uh, and elsewhere. I mean, you know, the Russians have been doing this, and I was in Azerbaijan last year as well. Um, so, um, so that's what I'm going to be doing next. I um, I'm actually the Istanbul bureau chief, so we're also watching how Turkey is managing. They're also getting squeezed on all sides by by Russia. Um, 
but also trying to is part of NATO, but trying to work that. So I'm I'm busy with all that. I don't actually have a book, uh, another book yet in plan, but um, let's hope there's something along coming along. Um, but you can you can see my my latest work on the New York Times website uh, from the region. Uh, we're also looking at you know the Afghan migrants coming through. Um, I've just been up on the border with the Turkish Greek border. Um, a terrible case of 19 uh, migrants thrown back from by Greece uh, who died in the freezing weather. So, so there's you know this this region is is going to be um, really really um, in convulsion for a long time now. You, you know, Russia invading a huge country like Ukraine. And uh, they're going to smash the city of Kiev. They are, as we speak. Uh, there's, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people fleeing to the borders already, and there'll be probably millions, you know, f- fleeing into Europe over the next months. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually unfathomable what we're going to be watching. Um, you know, it's, it's Afghanistan, but close, right, close to in inside Europe. So. Um, and Syria, you know, all together, it's going to be it's it's going to be a horrendous time, and um, I think it's it's going to be a world changing moment. You know, you would have thought twenty years after nine eleven, we've got another world changing event. It's um, and self inflicted this one by by Russia, so it's um, it's going to keep us busy. So I'll be, I think I'll be probably just mostly being doing newspaper reporting. Um, and then let's see if there's another book down the road. Um, and just to quickly note for our listeners, we're recording this interview on February 27th. Um, and so I guess, you know, good good luck to you and and hope stay safe. And I hope you're able to report, um, report the story from Ukraine. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to ageofviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find council author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. The Asia View Books podcast is on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Professor Jing Su, author of Kingdom of Characters, The Language Revolution That Made China Modern. But before then, thank you so much, Carlotta, for joining us today. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you.